This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining our Ned Group Investments Financial Fund Update. During these difficult times, we want to support and equip you to proactively manage your clients' concerns. The Ned Group Investments Financials Fund is a specialist portfolio which seeks capital growth by investing in both local as well as international shares from diverse regions. This includes some of the largest companies around the world, as well as some exposure to emerging markets. Denka Capital as a business is owner-managed with a long track record of outperformance through various market cycles. Topics for today include market context, fund performance, and fund positioning. This morning, we have Koki Koiman, Portfolio Manager of the Fund, calling in from Cape Town. Good morning, Koki, and thanks very much good for morning. joining us. Good morning, Anil. Yeah, and uh, thank you very much, and good morning to everybody, and especially to you and Rob and your team for putting this audio together, or the Skype together, and apologies for me being audio only, trying to follow 20, 30 different countries, or where they are in terms of their virus uh, curve and the economic curve and the banks in those countries. I just haven't had time to uh, get myself Skype. No, that's perfectly fine, Koki. I think the main thing is that everyone's quite interested to hear your views and insights, which we'll definitely get to over the course of the next half an hour. So, Koki, to kick off then, the Financials Fund has performed exceptionally well over such a long period of time. Can you please share some of your principles and philosophy for managing the fund? I think that's most probably the most important question because it, it comes a lot of it's going to come back throughout this morning in terms of how do we do things and what have we learned. But I, I think not only regarding to financials, but, but everything in investing, it, again, uh, the principles that we've been trying to apply is to understand, firstly, the importance of compounding. You, know, uh, you want investments uh, that compound for you. And in that regard, when it comes to equity investing, companies with higher returns on capital obviously compound better than low returns on capital. So there are a lot of investments that have low ROEs but are very cheap. So what you're trying to do then is to you know, hope for a re-rating. But if you've got a company with a high ROE, you know that even if it doesn't re-rate, every year your value of the investment grows by 20%. And so that's really been the focus of what we've done. If you look at our portfolio, our global portfolio, and also importantly the net group one, uh, the average return on capital of the companies we invested in even now and we've done a lot of recalculations, re-forecasts are, let's say, around 15%. That means that nothing else happens. Every year, the, the portfolio increases in intrinsic value by 15%. And in that regard, it's very important that we don't really care too much about the accounting valuations, like PEs, we look at the share of value growth. And underlying to that is obviously that you look at quality of the, of the franchises. So really all our work has always been, and now again in, in making decisions, is the quality of the management, specifically in terms of their rationality, in terms of decision-making, in terms of buybacks, in terms of dividends, in terms of merger and acquisitions. 
and you just need to have a look at the total return graph of something like Sunlum versus of Mutual or First Rand versus EPSA, and you get to see the difference between two sets of management teams and the effect of those decisions over longer over longer periods of time. And Koki, I think just the one thing which always amazes me whenever I speak to you is your vast experience of managing money through different market cycles. Can you please provide some context for us in terms of the current market conditions that we're experiencing now? Anil, yeah, I think what is what is different from previous ones, and and yeah, I I was too late for 1969. I spoke to Dries Petoy yesterday, who still tells you about 1969. <laughs> when I got mm-hmm. to university in 1971, then you know all the lectures were about 69, and we studied it. But but all the other crises in 2008, I lived through uh, like they were like 48-hour days, and uh, and afterwards we did a lot of work going back and trying to you know learn from it. But what makes this one different is that. We know what caused it. it. It it was a government decision or government globally decisions to actually shut down the economy, and so we also know what will end it. And we've actually got indicators that we can follow at the moment in terms of the, 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 the curve of the virus and the death rate and the new infection rate. So we know it will end. And uh, I think that's very important. This is not like 2008, where midway through 2008, we were starting to do big studies. Can this be a repeat of 1930? Will we have a six-year global depression? With this time, we know that whether it be three months or six months, we will normalize again as soon as governments decide it's safe for people to go back to work, even if it's gradually, even if it's in in only certain sectors, or but gradually there will be a normalization. So I think that's very important in terms of of this one. Secondly, where 2008 was was very US centric. This one is obviously global, which makes it worse, but it it doesn't affect everybody equally bad. And so the focus is a lot on, especially in the US, when 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 commentators talk about the unemployment rate that shot up. Bear in mind that those people that are now unemployed uh, of, of what we call a lot of them are hourly paid workers. So it's it's your waiters, it's it's people in restaurants, in bars, and and that's sad. Every job lost it. It is terrible. But as soon as the lockdown ends, those jobs will very quickly be employ uh, recreated. They will still be there. Not all of them. There is going to be destruction. But the destruction, I think, is less than we currently think. I mean, just think of in South Africa and most other countries, the percentage of civil servants. No civil servant loses their job. Fortunately or unfortunately, it's a different debate. But think in our financial services industry. I'm sure there's going to be trimming, but generally the banks, the insurers, the investment industry, you know, we're still working every day. Think of your food retailers, think of your food manufacturing, your agriculture. So I think the the effect is is not as bad as virtually we think uh, it will be. But in terms of the market, the sell down this time has been sharper than and more ferocious than anything we've seen. And it's interesting also in terms of bank valuations, it's 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 worse than, than I've seen in many, many years, and we'll come on to that later. But so I think this one 
the market acted very quickly. Whereas in 2008, it took a whole year. It just kept on going down gradually. This time it went down to about 23rd of March, and, and now it's hovering around trying to decide which way the economy is going to go. Koki, you mentioned about valuations. We'll definitely get onto that in more detail just now. But I just want to stick with comparisons to the global financial crisis of 2008, and specifically what you're seeing with regards to credit loss ratios, balance sheet strength, and other indicators of company health. Yeah, it's 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 still early days, and I think most of you will have seen uh, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo re- report their results on Monday. It gave us a bit of indication. Um, and J.P. Morgan set aside six billion dollars in provision. Uh, it's a massive amount. It's four times the normal average. But again, as with other banks we've been talking to and who gave indications. All of it so far is provisions. We actually, and I don't know if you looked at the Capitec result uh, as well, uh, there's actually no increase in bad debt yet. So most the large banks so far raised provisions uh, substantially, and obviously the provisions they're creating gives you an indication of, of how bad they all think it will get. And based on what J.P. Morgan did, the provisions they raised were generally in their credit card portfolio, which is always, you know, people who live on credit cards are those who have less savings and whose jobs most probably are more insecure. Um, but it's in the credit cards. It's in the logical one, energy and gas, and, and commercial real estate. And I'll bear in mind, again, on the banking side, and we'll touch on that later, I think investors just keep forgetting the substantial changes that have been brought about in in the banking and, in, and insurance capital ratios, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, 2015 as well was quite a learning curve for the U.S. banks and their exposure to oil and gas and, and, and commercial real estate has actually been diminished significantly. So, so far, the banks have come through this very well and the capital ratios are are very good. Maybe if I just use a quick example, I mean, Capitec, I looked at the results again yesterday, the reserves to loans is uh, 22%. So they've got for every 100 rand lent out 22 rand in reserves. That means 22% of the loans can go bad, and that excludes value of any collateral they might have. So 22 rand, 22% of every loan can go bad before you know, they go into a loss. And then the capital ratio is even higher, 40%. Every loan is covered by 40% capital. So that just gives you an idea of the amount of reserves and capital has been built up over the last 10 years. So that's really quite interesting. And then, Koki, obviously one of the key questions is about valuations. So at this point, would you say value trap or... Are you seeing good value out there? And potentially, what are some of the good opportunities that you're finding at the moment? Yeah, no, I mean, specifically in our sector, in the financial sector, my sector, sorry, Absa <laughs> uh, and Medco have been smashed. And, and, and I'll come to the reasons for that now. But, I mean, just to give you an example, Medco at, or Net Group at the bottom of the 2008 crisis traded at a price to net asset value of 1.3 times. And by the way, we always look at tangible net asset value. So we, we never include goodwill or trademarks or anything. It's, it's actually the hard assets. So price to book in 2008, worst time 1.3. 
APSA was 1.6. Now, Medgroup Med is trading at 0.6. It's a 40% discount to its net asset value, and APSA is trading at 0.88. It's a 12% discount uh, to tangible asset value. Uh, so you can see that the market is very, very, very negative. Uh, in Medcore's case, there are a few factors that, that makes them nervous. I think incorrectly so, but partly, of course, their large exposure to commercial real estate. Yeah, NetBank has, has a lot of lending out on that side. And so, obviously, the, the, the game for real estate is going to change. There's going to be big, a lot less demand for office space, for manufacturing space. So, but it won't be that bad. And secondly, obviously, they have exposure through EcoBank uh, to Nigeria. And then it's a smaller bank, and your smaller banks always get hit more than the larger banks. But valuations are um, extremely low. In fact, NetBank, I had a quick look. If you simply try and look through normalization 2022, not too far away, it's on a 19% dividend yield for 2022. So if you if you say you're going to get that and accept our, our analyses and the cuts in, in earnings, then from 2022, you're going to get 19%. And that remember, that will grow every year uh, as a dividend. I mean, that's, that's just so it shows you how low the valuations are. Yeah, and I guess in the case of some banks, at least, where they've already declared dividends, but potentially in the future, it's probably going to be cuts, right? Yeah, important to note there that the, the globally so far, uh, except in the US, US have been instructed not to do buybacks, but they, uh, JP Morgan, for instance, all said they will pay dividends. But generally, the banks have been asked or instructed, depending on the wording, not to pay dividends for at least six months, and then it will be revised. In the case, interesting, of, of the Dutch banks, ABN Amer and ING, they actually created a provision, an account for the dividends that they had declared. And so they will still be paid, but only in six months time. Well, unless the situation really deteriorates. So they've actually created the dividend as a as a, as a a creditor that, that they see as still payable, but investors will have to wait until it's over before they get it. Unless obviously we go into an awful down situation. Now, I think that's also where the market in, in Europe totally overreacted when the dividends were cut. The sell-off was brutal, like 10, 12, 15% in, in, in one day. And the market ignores the fact that A, those dividends have been put on hold, and they will be paid most probably. But even then, from next year, if we normalize next year, probability is high, then you get your dividends again. So like ABN Amer and ING, uh, as example now, are on 12% forward dividend yields. I mean, in, in, in an environment where you're getting negative interest rates in your trading accounts, you know, at some stage when we normalize, there's going to be a huge scramble to get hold of those dividends. And I'll see the share prices then reacting sharply. Mm, Koki, and just from many previous conversations that we've had, it's always been evident that you place quite a large focus on backing great management teams as a key part of your investment process. So what uh, what have you observed in recent weeks, and what are your thoughts about what management has been doing specifically? Yeah, it's it's again I mentioned earlier some of this is of mutual first round versus assets. Interesting, I, I had a phone call with Ian Kirk uh, last week, uh, CEO of of, of Sundam, and I saw Manager Cilizay at Sundam uh, day before lockdown, and I was also 
lucky enough to to meet all the top managements of the SA banks just the week when it all started happening. But 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 some of them there of mutual, and I'm not knocking old mutual here. I mean, it, it's a great company. Whenever I used to see Johan von Sale or, or Ian, they'd always say that's old mutual is a formidable competitor. But I mean, I'm just using it as an example where for a lot of reasons, we all know the reasons very well with the tussle and the fight with the CEO, you're on the back foot. So whereas you've noticed someone announced a whole new management team coming in, a new chairman, a new CEO, a new CFO. And interesting, in, in the run-up to that, when it became apparent that you know they were talking about how long Ian still stays after his five years, I actually said to the guys, listen, not that they listen to me, but <laughs> if, if you're going to make changes you know, to your management team, you want to make it now so that your new team is part of of the strategy because you're now strategizing what is your what your business going to look like for the next three, four, five, ten years. And you don't want the guys who are responsible now to leave at the end of the year and then you get new guys in who might not agree with the decisions made. And the strength of Sunlum, again, I'm not trying to push Sunlum yet, or this to me such a classical example of what happened, is that they were able to make those changes, bring in, one, I think, a very good chairman, a very good CFO, and a very good CEO, with Ogmutual still floundering around. There's arguments at the top in terms of, you know, what decisions, and I'm sure there are two camps. And so what we've always tried to do in our investments is make sure and it comes back to the whole you know, corporate governance and uh, you know, responsible investing thing. We, we've always we've learned that lesson the hard way over many years. You want to make sure that you invest with good management who are on the front foot. And all our studies have shown that in, in, in difficult times like now, it's your good teams that actually come up stronger. Because normally what happened in 2008, we saw that you saw Lehman's falling over, Royal Bank of Scotland, AIG, um, but your good guys actually benefited because they took the business that the weaker players lost. So again, in terms of our, our portfolio, well, we went into the into this crisis with uh, what we thought was a very good portfolio. And there's always one or two that you say, okay, let's the valuation has become so attractive, let's start nibbling a bit here. And, and in the US, one of them was AIG. Uh, it's now in its 11th year of the turnaround strategy post-2008, and surprise, not surprisingly, that share gets knocked down the most because that's where the market still is the most uncertain, whereas your quality shares have actually held up a lot a lot better. So in terms of yeah, what we've been trying to do is just when, we, when we've had outflows, rather sell those that we're least certain of and keep those that we know are doing well. Thanks, Koki. And- you started talking a bit about this already, but just please, if you can go through a high-level attribution analysis, so some of the contributors and detractors within the fund this year to date. Yeah, interesting that, uh, and I'm, I'm assuming surprise, and if you don't look at it, if I ask you which would be the, most, the, the uh, positive contributors, it's actually been some time, and I think I'm sure most of you have just stood still for a few seconds and realized which which industries or which sectors benefit and which lose. So actually, Santam is one of the businesses that, that does benefit from this crisis. Just look around at how many cars they are driving around and just think of the normal Easter death rate and accident rate. So the claims ratio has just dropped. And it's not Santam, this is EMT insurance globally. And fortunately, 
yeah, sometimes you're lucky. But in January, we actually did buy more Santam. There are a lot of reasons for that. We didn't know what was going to happen. And the same we did so in, in the U.S. We bought more Renaissance Ray. Progressive, Progressive there is, is the big competitor of Geico, which is Berkshire Hathaway's PNC insurer. And all of those guys are saying the same. And in fact, all of them are coming with programs to reduce premiums for their clients during this lockdown. But still, they're going to do very well because... Yeah, they're still getting their premium income. Uh, but so the, the, the major contributors for Samsung, where we've got a 4.5% position, it's the highest we've had. It's a fairly liquid share, so you can't buy too much. Uh, JSE is another one. It's also done fairly well, you can imagine. Uh, there's no bad debts. And uh, trading goes on, and volume has actually increased. And then obviously in the fund, the 20% investment we have in the, in the Denko Global Financial Fund, uh, in dollar terms, that did very poorly. Uh, well, poorly, it, it was reflected what was happening in global markets. was sold down 43%, but the 27% pawn in the RAN has been cushioning that the whole time. So it shows up as having been a relative contributor. And then, unfortunately, the two shares that got sold down the most were NetBank and APSA. And I think in, in this case, it is the market has overreacted, but it's normal, the normal re- knee-jerk reaction. I think other investors have been doing the same as us in selling you know, what they perceive as, as the more at-risk banks and hanging on to the first rounds with a very good established management team and Standard Bank, which is more diversified in Africa as well. And Koki, you've spoken about some of the portfolio actions that you've taken over the past few weeks. Can you please elaborate a bit more on some of your risk management processes as well and how you think about risk? Yeah, so when I started off, you know, this is now 30 years ago when uh, a young from Rebeck and Simon van Ostel were still part of our team. <laughs> uh, that, um, yeah, I used to, uh, and those were the days when, when we looked at valuations first and you looked at how much a share price had fallen and then you started researching that. Over the years, I've, I've, I've changed and increasingly in 2008 played a large role. Increasingly, the focus has always been just on quality of management. And all our studies, we've done a lot of studies over the years going back in just, it's amazing if you take like banks all over the world, you take in South Africa as well, and you take them from, let's say, 2006 to 2012, and you see which ones came through. It's always the ones that had the highest capital reserves, uh, you know, the lowest cost of income ratios. So essentially, that's really what we've done. Uh, unfortunately, in, in, in both the financial funds, we had significant outflows. And when they started, I was saying to my team, what are these guys doing? Yeah, how can you disinvest? Uh, now, two months later, I think oh, so they, they were very clever. <laughs> uh, so I was the fool. I uh, I just looked at, at the quality of what the portfolio and and you know didn't anticipate the market could fall this much. But so a lot of what we've done is driven by the outflows. So it was more each time there wasn't scope to buy anything. It was more what do you sell? And so generally, won't be surprised to you. Uh, generally, we've been selling also the ones that that we were the most uncertain about. So. In a time like this, always we went for certainty and the best franchise and the best um, and you know the best track record. Okay, and Koki, I just wouldn't mind if you could please chat about some of your favorite stocks 
within the Ned Group Financials Fund, as well as the Denker Global Financial Fund, which is about a 20% component of the Ned Group Fund. Yeah, so the, the top stocks in, in, the, in the Ned Group Fund is now uh, Sunlum First and JSE, that's the top three. Uh, JSE, you can see how that's risen. It always used to be, I think, number 10, 11, 12, and it's a bit of a factor. A, uh, there were a lot of things, and, and that management team has also messed up a lot in the past few years. Um, new CEO coming in is also making a difference. But yeah, it, it became too cheap towards the end of last year, January, and we actually added. There were two things that we did before everything happened that now turned out to be very wise, and the one was JSE, and the other one was Santam. So the two best quality uh, companies or financials, I think, just with, in terms of the management teams being in place and what they're doing, uh, are some of them in first round. So they're the top holdings, and then JSE is third. And then the next four are Standard Bank, Investec Bank, uh, PSG, and Suntum. Now, Suntum would have had big exposure if it wasn't for the liquidity. PSG, I have if we're really looking at maybe we should increase that again, you know, Pure has come through well, Capitec has come through well, PSG, Consults, okay, there are good parts and bad parts, but the result was not too bad. And uh, Standard Bank is just very diversified and, and, and I've got a long track record. Investec Bank is more difficult, but uh, but I think you know, with the new teams under Farning and, and obviously Investec Bank is still have the stake in, in 1999. So those guys are very focused, and they've got that advantage there in the UK. It's a, in South Africa, very high net worth, net value uh, client base. So yeah, those are the ones we like most. If you look at globally, uh, we actually did more or less the same. Well, in terms of going for quality, and there we've increased, as I said earlier, some of our PNC exposure. We sold, we had very little in Brazil. Uh, Brazil was looking as if it was starting to turn. The banks there, Ico and Bontesco, are unbelievably good banks. But reluctantly, we sold Brazil simply because the president, uh, Bolsonaro, was not reading the script in terms of uh, COVID-19. He still, he still actually to this date, I think, ignores it and uh, saying it's a flu and has not really gone down into lockdown. And sadly, we know Brazil is unfortunately going to follow the same curve or the probability is higher. And so we reduced a bit of our oil exposure, um, didn't quite think it would get to $19 where it's now, but, you know, on... on uh, on balance of probabilities, we thought we must reduce that a bit and increase DMC. So the top stocks there are now uh, not really changed a lot. There's JP Morgan, which we really like. The result was very good. A lot of people look at the, at the headline earnings, and that looks bad, 69% down, but they ignore the fact or forget that most of that is simply provision. So the underlying results is actually quite good. The bad debts haven't come through yet. March was actually the best ever lending uh, to corporates. And that's partly because corporates were almost like uh, a lot of people were buying toilet rolls. They were stocking up prior to lock, lockdown on, 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 on cash and, and balance sheet facilities. So their clients wanted to make sure they're in good shape. But, but Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, City, all those large diversified banks benefited from that. But yeah, so J.P. Morgan will come through this exceptionally well. It's not trading below book value. So if it wasn't so big, and in fact, we have, have every time when it sells down, been adding a bit here and there. And so the SM, uh, mortgage insurer, 
which again, the market is playing the 2008 script and getting it wrong. Uh, the mortgage market and insurance market has changed dramatically. And then you know, a lot of other shares which uh, in, investors in the fund shouldn't have heard of. And uh, because they smaller companies, good franchise, good management teams, but have been taking market share because they just better and quicker than the larger peers. Um, so on, on the international side, it's actually interesting. I think it's the first time, long time, the top three are all U.S. It's uh, J.B. Morgan, Essence, and City. City has actually held up well, and the results are also good. It's, it's actually a different business from what it was in 2008. And then it's spread over in the UK, in Europe, India, and uh, and Russia. Actually, Tinkoff, uh, we still like that. It's doing very well, and they they're one of the best digitalized franchises in the world, and they will do very well in this environment. Okay, excellent, Koki. Thanks very much. That's all we have time for today. Really appreciate your insight and expertise. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Anil. Thank you. And to our valued investors, we disseminated a short note on the fund recently. If you haven't yet received it, please do contact your relationship manager. We will be happy to forward that on to you. Otherwise, please feel welcome to contact us with any additional questions or concerns that you may have. Your trust is important to us, and rest assured that we are available to support you and your clients during these difficult times. Thanks very much for joining us today. A reminder that we will be speaking to Walter Eilert for an update on the NetGroup Investments Bravata Worldwide Flexible Fund tomorrow morning at 10. NetGroup Collective Investments is an authorized collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. NetGroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.